Good morning, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. My name is Duncan. I have the privilege of serving as pastor here, and it is my privilege to welcome you to come and to worship the living God. Uh, you're very welcome here, and if you're visiting uh, as a general guide, we, um, we stand to sing, and for everything else, we sit down. Um, that will keep you right in this service today. Um, but why do we come to worship God? I want to read some verses from Scripture, uh, from the prophecy of Isaiah, and I don't know, we'll think about some of the motivations here about why and who should worship God. Isaiah 25, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The prophet Isaiah says, because of what God has done, he has broken down these great strongholds that stood against God's people. Because he's done that, we will exalt him and we will praise him. He has broken down the strongholds of sin and of death and of Satan, and not just because of what he has done, but because of what he has promised to do, that he will gather together all God's people and death will finally be gone. And so who does Isaiah say should come and worship God? Well, he says the poor, those who are in distress, those who are in the storm, those who feel at the mercy of others. He says, come, exalt the Lord, and wait on the Lord, who will bring this great day to pass. I'm going to invite uh, Dave to come and uh, bring us the reading for today. Thank you. Morning. Reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 to 26. 
Ecclesiastes 2, 12 to 26. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity, for there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that I know, all that now is, will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Therefore, I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor, in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting, that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Whatever you do, Remember to enjoy them. Anyone ever told you that before? Whatever you do, remember to enjoy them. How many parents have been given that advice? By those whose kids are now all grown up, their chance to enjoy their children seems to be gone, and they want the next generation to learn this one thing. And despite repeated pleadings, how many parents receive the gift of children and we are so concerned with establishing routine, hitting developmental milestones, making sure they're fitting in, fretting about whether this extracurricular activity or this one will make better for them in the long term, oh, well, let's just do both bowing to the pressure of what other parents are doing, 
being doggedly focused on achieving the right grades, and then the whole experience is over before they know it. And barely can they remember enjoying it. In fact, the memories are of a self-inflicted stress in which, tragically, they had wished away many days of parenthood, hoping it would quickly pass so they could get to the next thing. And all that's left for them to do is to burden new parents by saying, whatever you do, remember to enjoy them. How radical it would be, wouldn't it, to break the cycle And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is aimed at doing. It's there to get us to break the cycle. Break the cycle that is repeated generation after generation. This pattern that receives gifts from God every day. Only to misuse them. To find no joy in them. And instead to have sorrow and an emptiness out of life from the gifts that God has given. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, let's break the cycle. This book of the Bible is unlike any other. It's a remarkable book. It is the story, in a sense, of a man's search for the meaning of life. He wants to know, for all the labor and for all of the hardship of life, what do you gain at the end of it all? And his conclusion has been that it's all vanity. And it's his favorite word in this book, that word vanity. It means vapor. Life is a vapor. It appears for a moment. You cannot grasp hold of it, and it soon vanishes without any trace that it was ever there. And to spend your life pretending that it's something else, or laboring hard to try and make life something other than that, that is vanity too. It's like chasing after the wind. That's how he puts it. This life under the sun is short. And so you need to make wise choices about how you will live it. You will need the right perspective if you are to avoid the repeated mistakes of past generations. The writer of this book is introduced to us as the preacher. And last week, if you were with us, we saw that he showed us some of his specific experimental evidence that led him to conclude that life is vanity. We're set in the shoes of King Solomon, a man who is unsurpassed in wisdom, who applied all of his wisdom, all of his learning to the world around him. He wanted to learn all that he could, and he found that the more knowledge that he gained, the more sorrowful life became. Solomon was a man of means, and so he used those means to expose himself to every conceivable pleasure. Laughter, wine, servants, singers, sex, building projects, luxury legacy projects, attaining wealth. And he says this, he says, I became great and and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And he told us at that point that he did find some pleasure in all of those things. 
But when he considered the work that he put into it, this is what he said in verse 11 of chapter 2. He said, Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Having tried everything to the fullest degree that a human being could, he concluded that there is no gain. You get to the end of life, and there is nothing left over. You die, and you're forgotten. And nothing can change that. Not laughter, not drink, not career, not money, not sex. This is your life. And in the second part of chapter 2, the preacher moves the discussion onto some positive territory. You've been hankering for that for weeks, haven't you? Moves it onto positive territory. And he's going to tell us how to enjoy God's gifts. Before he gets there, he's got something else he's going to do first. In our house, maybe you've got this as well. In our house, there is a spot where the car key stays, right? That's where it stays. So when you're going to go to the car, you know where to go. Now, if the key's not there, you go looking. And if you don't find it in the next few obvious places, whether it's a pocket or the wrong shelf in the kitchen or whatever it is, what do you sometimes do? I'll tell you what I do. I go back to the spot where it should be and I check again, just to be sure. There's something strange about that, but that's, there's something about human nature there, isn't there? And my wife will often say, go back and check where it should be. Are you, are you sure? Maybe there's something that we missed there. And that's what the preacher does for us here. He wants to revisit some of those things that he's already looked at. And particularly, he's going to revisit wisdom and he's going to revisit work. Things which seem to have just so much potential for us as human beings. And it's as if he says, maybe there's something we've missed there. So we're going to look at those again briefly. So first of all, verses 12 through to 17, the preacher speaks to us about the benefits and the limits of wisdom. The benefits and the limits of wisdom. So you see in verse 12, that's where he turns um, I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And like that regretful parent, the one who comes after him is the one who needs to learn from him. That seems to be the gist of what he's saying in verse 12. What can the man do who comes after the king? Well, here this, this King Solomon speaking. What can the one who comes after the king do? Only what has already been done. It's as if he wants to, to pass on something to those who are coming after. And it's important that he does this. After all, we could hear him saying, there's really no benefit in wisdom at all. There's no point in learning anything. That's not his viewpoint. He's not saying that those things are a waste of time. He's not saying that he's given up on those things. That's certainly not what he wants us to take from his investigation. So he circles back. So what about wisdom? Verse 13. He says, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. There is more to be gained from having wisdom, from having knowledge and understanding. It is far preferable to have that than to be a fool. That's what he says. It's the differences between like the difference of night and day. Um, he goes on and he says, it's as if, you know, the wise person has eyes in his head. He's able to see. He's able to to understand the world. He's able to navigate life with more skill than the fool who walks in darkness, blinded. 
the foolish or the ignorant, their lives are awash with poor choices, poor financial choices, poor relationship choices, poor health choices, poor social choices. In every area of life, wisdom always comes out on top over foolishness. Wisdom lets us see clearly. But look at verse 14. I mean, what a turnaround this is. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them, wise and foolish. Verse 15, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? There is one event that happens to all of them that the preacher has in mind, and it's death. It's death that sobers him as he thinks about this. You see that in verse 16, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So he says, for all of the benefits of wisdom, for all of the advantages that it brings to the one who possesses it, it is utterly powerless to stop death. You could perhaps with wisdom delay death, but you could never stop it. And so what's the point, he asks? I mean, why give your life to the pursuit of wisdom? Why make that your aim in life? Why make the pursuit of knowledge the gain that you seek? when death is inevitably going to get in the way of your pursuit. And it utterly depresses the preacher. In fact, in verse 17, he says he hated life. When he thought about these things, he hated life. I mean, what has the preacher got? Wisdom to see the world clearly. And it's a grievous and unhappy thing for him. He said back in chapter 1, verse 18, he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. And here he's showing us that. He's saying wisdom enables you to see reality, but it does not give you the power to change reality. And so what would you prefer? Wisdom enables the preacher to see that death is coming. Now, that sounds strange. I mean, we all know that death is coming. But there's knowing and there's knowing, isn't there? Very few people under the age of 40 give any active thought to the reality of death. It's always someone else who will suffer that terrible accident, that devastating disease, that loss of a loved one. But the preacher has wisdom And he sees that death is sure. And he sees that all his wisdom actually won't count for anything when it comes to death. He may well end up in a grave next to the village idiot. The same fate is coming. What's done under the sun is grievous, verse 17, because death is real. And the writer here, he wants you and me to meaningfully wrestle with this, the reality of your own death, because it's this that will change your perspective on life. And it is this wisdom that actually will bring the breakthrough for the preacher. But there's something else before we get there. He circles back to look at work again. 
because this reality of death that wisdom has brought to the forefront of his mind has caused him to hate his work as well. And you see that throughout verses 18 to 23, um, and really in those verses he's saying this is when work is hard and empty. He uses the word toil repeatedly, I think eight times I counted. And when he says toil, it's more than just work. You know, that's the, it's got a certain flavor to it. It's the word that was used to describe the work that the Israelites did when they were enslaved in Egypt. It's even translated as anguish in one part of the Bible to describe the experience of the man of sorrows in Isaiah 53. So you see that toil is a word that carries with it the idea of hard work that is wearisome. And he has come to hate it. He works hard, but he hates it. And do you know why he hates it? Because he has come to understand that everything that his work produces will one day be left to someone else. Everything that he has poured his blood, sweat, and tears into. I mean, look at how he describes his efforts. Um, Look at verse 19. He has toiled with wisdom. Verse 21, with wisdom, knowledge, and skill he's toiled. I mean, that's all excellent, right? I mean, that's how you want someone to work. But death is going to interrupt it. What was built up and what was earned by wisdom and hard work will all be left to someone else. And here's the problem, verse 19. Who knows whether the next guy will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master over everything for which I have toiled. And verse 21. He must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. King Solomon is an apt example for us. His reign was an unprecedented time of prosperity in Israel. It truly was thought of as the golden age in Israel's history. And Solomon left his legacy handpicked to his son Rehoboam. And unlike his father, Rehoboam was a fool. And before too long into his reign, he had caused division in the nation And 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel had upped sticks and established themselves as an independent nation. I suppose it's the sort of thing we see today in politics, where it's so divided. You know, a president might rule, and who knows, he could rule wisely in some ways, but he has to eventually hand the presidency over to someone else. And that next president may well dismantle everything that the previous president put in place. It's grievous, it's vanity, it's, it's, it's representative, isn't it, of just how vapor-like this life is. And despite that, just consider what people go through to try and eke out some gain from work. I mean, the language of verses 22 and 23 here are really the words of a workaholic. This is what it's like. There is the striving of heart with which he toils. All his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation, a frustration. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. And Solomon's question is really, what do you have to show for all of that? 
All you have to show is something that you will have no choice but to hand over to someone else, maybe even a fool, maybe someone who will flush it all down the drain. What a waste. What a waste of my life. The Russian writer Leo Tolstoy, a writer of War and Peace, he, he felt the same urge. He has a book of confessions that he's written. Uh, the same urge as the preacher here. At age 50, he tells us that he started to ask himself these questions. What will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? It's the same question as Ecclesiastes has been asking from the very first verse. He says, if you're looking for your meaning and your gain through the things of life, through life lived under the sun, through your own hard work, then that's foolish. For there will be nothing left over when you die. It will be destroyed by death and even the things you've built up. Perhaps even a fool will take over and dismantle it. We all have to come face to face with this. Sinking yourself into your work or your career in order to make something for yourself, something that you hope will endure, something that will mask the vapor-like nature of life is vanity. Now, people's motives vary, of course, don't they? For some, it's simply money and possessions. But for others, it's progress. It's the sense of achievement. It's about providing, uh, it's about proving myself to others or even proving myself to myself. But whatever the variety, be sure, says Ecclesiastes, everything that you could possibly gain from that will disappear. So there must be a better way, right? Well, almost out of nowhere, the better way emerges, verses 24 to 26. We're just jumping in here. The writer says, here's what it means to live the good life. Here's what the good life looks like. And it catches us off guard, this. Because he says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. I mean, having spent nearly two chapters telling us that all is meaningless and that the meaning of life is not found in the things that we consume for pleasure, it is not found in the work that we find our hands to do, he tells us there's nothing better. There is nothing better than we should eat and drink and find enjoyment in our work. I mean, we thought he was saying the opposite, right? But no, he was saying that there is no enjoyment in any of these things when we try to find the meaning of life in them, when we try to use them to deny the brevity of life. In such cases, you may be the one consuming food and drink, but in fact, it is really consuming you. Look at our society. We are a society being consumed by what we consume. Though you might be using work to get a wage, you can do that in such a way that your work is using you and you become its slave. 
No, the preacher here is introducing a whole new way of looking at the world. It is the wisdom that taught him that life is a vapor that has enabled him to come to these conclusions, that there's nothing better to eat and drink and enjoy your work. And why? Because, well, look what he says, still verse 24, this, this eating, drinking, enjoying work, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? I mean, here it is. Your life is more than the rat race. Life is about more than pursuing the wind. No, these things that we have have been given to us as a gift from God to be enjoyed. So let's follow the preacher's logic here. He says, life is short. Everyone dies and is soon forgotten. Regardless of who you are, that is an unchangeable fact of life. You must accept it. Please accept it, he says. This is what it means to be a creature. This is how God has ordained it to be. Now, if you embrace those creaturely limitations, now suddenly joy is possible. Now you can enjoy your food and your drink. You can enjoy your work for what it is because you're not living your life trying to manipulate those gifts into something else that will make you better beyond life, something that will make life something other than what it is. No, he says, embrace these limitations that God has given, and within those limitations, you'll find the joy of eating and drinking, and even the joy of working. And I think the preacher is genuine here. I don't, I don't think he's being, I mean, some people would say, oh, he must be being sarcastic here or depressive. But I think he's genuine here when he says there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in the New Testament to encourage him to stand against those who were down on, on certain types of foods and insisted on living a, a bare minimum lifestyle. The Apostle Paul said, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Paul's message was, no, the the Christian life, the life that is most true to walking with God is not the life that says, well, I'll just get by on the bare minimum. It's not the life that says enjoyment is a sin. It is a life that enjoys the gifts of God to the fullest because we receive from God with thanksgiving. These are the joys of life, and the joy that they bring is genuine joy. Embrace that the ordinariness of your life actually becomes a joy-filled experience as you acknowledge day by day the good gifts of God. God calls people to work and to be engaged in productive labor. There is a joy in that, and that's the gift of God. Anytime you find satisfaction in your job, you don't need to feel bad about that. You don't even need to feel bad about saying, I love my job. It's a gift from God. But that's the joy that it gives. That's the limit of what it can give. That is the joy of work. 
Try and squeeze it into something else. Try and make it into the thing that defines you, is your identity, is the thing that will give you your legacy and blah, blah, blah. Then you lose the joy altogether. It has ceased to be a gift received from God. It's become a means to something else. So, friends, food is God's gift to be enjoyed. There really is nothing better than sitting down with family or friends to enjoy a Sunday roast. A sandwich for lunch is something to be delighted in with thanksgiving, not something to be scarfed down when you're on the hoof. Toast and honey, steak and chips, what wonderful gifts God has given to us to enjoy. With this understanding of life, well, thankfulness becomes the necessary quality to finding that joy. This is why we pause to say thank you to God at mealtimes, because we know that it's this posture of thankfulness that brings joy in the ordinary things of life. It really is living life to the full, and it is ours so long as we see that that, that is the joy enjoy what it is for what it is. The joy goes beyond that, and I don't think uh, we're going to see Ecclesiastes will take us into relationships eventually as well, but you can expand it beyond that. What gifts does God give? The joy of physical exercise, more of a joy for some than others, the joys of competitive sports, time with friends and family, completing that project at work. These are the joys of life given by God to be received with thanksgiving and enjoyed. And we can only most truly enjoy them when we receive them as part of this short life. It's soon to be over, but a life lived in relationship with God, thankful to God for giving us more than we could ever deserve, is a life of joy. And this is to liberate us. All these gifts are here to draw us closer to Him to enable us to respond to God in adoration. But before we can truly appreciate these gifts, we actually need to appreciate and receive the greatest gift of all. God has given us His Son, and He is a gift that promises abundant life. Listen to Jesus' words. These are taken from John chapter 10, and Jesus is using this metaphor of shepherd and sheep. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see, Jesus gives the life that truly finds gain. Your life is still a vapor, lived under the sun. Death is still coming. But here is what Jesus provides, salvation. 
He said, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He provides salvation. He is the door by which we can enter into God's flock, to belong to God, to be part of His family. Because you see, appreciating God's gifts starts with knowing the giver. And left to ourselves, we do not know God. We are turned away from Him, wandering away from Him like sheep without a shepherd, living our lives with ourselves at the center of our own little universe, using whatever we have in life to make something meaningful out of it for me. That is the striving after wind, vain life. Jesus comes to say, I am the door, the door to knowing God, the door into true abundant life. And how does he do that? Well, he tells us he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. You see, in many ways, sheep are ignorant. You can excuse a wandering sheep. But we as human beings, we delight to turn away from God. We delight to rebel against him. We delight to say, I'm not listening to his rules, I'll set my own path. And in however small a way we think we might have done that, that is the reality and that is sin. We are separated from God because of it. But he has sent his son not just to speak nice words, but to lay down his life for the sheep. And this is the story of Jesus Christ. His life takes him to the cross where he dies not for his own sins, he had none, but for the sins of all who will come to him and find salvation, rescued from the judgment we deserve for our rebellion against God. And we can be sure of that because he has raised Jesus from the dead and calls every one of us to respond. Here is the liberty that knowing Jesus brings we know that we don't have to use the stuff and the things that we have in this life to try and fight against the impending death that lies before us. Because actually, when we have Christ, we already have gain. Whatever gain is possible beyond this life is only what God can give you by His grace, and He gives it to you in Jesus, who promises eternal life. And when we have Him, we don't need to do this fighting against the shortness and the brevity of life. We don't need to do all this extra strain in order to find some meaning at the end of life. No, we have it in Christ, and He enables us to say, hey, life is short, and death is coming, and for now I'm going to enjoy my Sunday lunch. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful gift. Let's not, let's not ram this down our throats, guys. We're going to sit round together and we're going to be thankful for what God has given. What a different posture altogether. Wisdom in living this short life is a life of thankfulness to God. And it starts by knowing Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then you can have this great purpose in life. You know, Paul urged the Corinthians, he said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or work or whatever... Do all things to the glory of God. What a beautiful perspective on the short life that we have. To live it for God's glory. Thankful for what he has given. For there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. Because it's from the hand of God. 
And apart from him, no one can have that enjoyment. And so I pray that today, every one of us would be sure we know Jesus, that we know God, we know the gift giver. You need to come to him and accept this free gift of salvation in Christ. And for all of us who are believers in Christ, that this may be a week of joy for you as you give thanks for all of God's gifts to you and that you're able to enjoy them as from his hand to you. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for these words that are so hard for us to take in. Lord, none of us like to be confronted with some of these harsher realities of what life is and what life isn't. But we thank you, God, that you are the one who's over all of this. And Lord, that we are your creatures made to depend upon you. You've made us to know you and to worship you. And you have given us everything we could ever need to do that. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray, Father, that our knowledge of you and our love for you and our gratitude to you would be deepened this week as we reflect not only on all that Jesus has done for us, but in all these good gifts that you give to us. Oh, Lord, these gifts of food and drink. For those of us who have work, Lord, what a gift you've given. And for all the many other things, whether that be family, hobbies, Lord, these pleasures in life, help us to see them as from your hand and to want to use them to glorify you. As we thank you for your amazing grace towards us in Christ. Amen. Please do stay for tea and coffee. And if anyone wants to ask any questions or if you'd appreciate prayer, I'll be down in this corner. But uh, as we close, let's say the words of the grace together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.